the idea of permission. Oh, it's, it's constant. I think, you know, and something I like to think that I, I try to be a cheerleader when I'm teaching for people to have the permission to try something new, to make a mistake because it's, that's how you learn. You know, there's all those things, but it's really true for me. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. The reason I love speaking with urban sketchers is that even beyond the different ways that we see and share our worlds, we come from such different interesting backgrounds. This makes the art unique and it also makes everyone's point of view unique. Learning about these life trajectories also helps me to push back against the idea that In order to be successful, we must have all the answers figured out from before. Successful people and great artists and sketchers don't have everything figured out from before. They didn't see a path laid out clearly for them to follow. They chased instinct, they followed their curiosity, and more often than not, they have made a path for themselves. This is heartening for someone in my position, also eager to make his own path. And I hope that it gives you courage as well. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Los Angeles-based artist, sketcher, and educator Virginia Hine about her work as a toy designer, as a fine artist, and her discovery of urban sketching. Fresh out of art school, Virginia joined Mattel in the 80s, and we speak about the toy industry in the first part of our conversation. I'm curious to know how toys were designed and about the positive friction between creatives and business and marketing professionals in this process. Later, Virginia went back to her pursuit of fine art, and I seek to understand what motivated this decision, as well as how her experience in commercial art changed her approach towards fine art. Her discovery of urban sketching and her role in the early USK blog is also fascinating to me because it would subsequently become her primary means of artistic expression. I ask her about playing the role of urban sketch correspondent and how that title gave her a new mission in her hometown of Los Angeles. Find Virginia's beautiful work on Instagram using the link in the show notes. Our conversation went in lots of directions I did not expect it to go. We kept hitting wonderful tangents and took many leisurely detours. We talk about urban sketching and watercolors and teaching and spending our lives continuously learning new things. I learned so many things from speaking to her and I hope that you will enjoy our conversation at least as much as I did. Good morning, Virginia. Thank you for joining me on the Sneaky Art Podcast. Good morning. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, and I'm so excited to speak with you because uh, I I follow your art on Instagram and I love it for so many different reasons. And I wanted to speak to you for one reason that came to me from looking at your Instagram feed. But then I looked at your website and I looked at your blog and I found out so many more reasons for this conversation. So I'm super excited to uh, to parse all these different things that you've done and 
to learn to learn about all these different industries that you've been involved in so uh, one of the things that really interests me about urban sketchers is that in general whenever you meet a group of urban sketchers you find that they come from a, such a variety of backgrounds people with all kinds of artistic inclinations motivations training and passions come to uh, spend their time this way to draw from observation so there's always a lot to learn about why they're doing what they're doing how they came to be doing these things and there's just so much so much to gain from knowing those things so i want to talk to you about the different kinds of work you've done but uh let's start with the first phase of your association or your love for art in your life can you tell me a little bit about uh like just the early years of how you came to pursue art in different ways as a hobby as an enthusiast and the the journey that towards your mfa degree oh well if if you put it that way i would have to say i'm one of those people that just you know i've been drawing since i could hold a crayon you know i just that was a very natural inclination for me and i was lucky that i was encouraged and i think my parents never imagined you could make a living doing art but you know in terms of just it was so clear that that's what i love to do so and drawing was always my first love and painting but i think drawing is like my first language and i i now and then i meet meet other people who are kind of like that it's interesting but uh yeah i i think there was never a time i didn't imagine being an artist but i don't know that i put together the idea that you could do that you know <laughs> as a right. life but it was always something i loved to do uh-huh um can you think about some of these early things that really got you interested in one you know like as children all of us draw all of us like to play with crayons and colors of various kinds but sure there's a certain age and i completely resonate with this idea of not thinking or your parents not thinking about art being a viable profession because in so many parts of the world that is still so true in so many ways and it's totally relatable so i'm thinking about uh, the age we reach at which we ourselves decide that maybe this is not a you know a serious thing to do and a lot of us drop away from these early hobbies so what kept you going and uh, how did you how did uh, how did the decision to get an education in the subject come about That's a great question and especially because I'm also an educator and I meet I meet students often who have had to, who've come back to art after many years because they did walk away from it and for whatever reason it's just it's something I it was so much a part of me I don't think I was able to walk away from it you know it's just something that I always did I went to college as an art major and you know i just somehow i think the assumption in my family was that well of course you'll teach because that's a family script you know is teaching and i wasn't so sure that's what i wanted to do it is as it turns out i love doing it but you know i didn't know that at the time but it just seemed to me that that's what i was going to do it's just what i loved more than anything and it, it was just a very clear i guess i'm lucky in that way it was a clear path but it's that path has so many different uh directions that it's gone you know within that so i think there's things i found myself doing i never imagined that somebody could do for a living but you know i've done many things while 
being able to be a person who was an artist my pretty much my whole life in some way. Yeah, and I find that quite interesting that uh, you know when you when we look back at some artists we think about their decisions and the the paths that they took these different forks that appeared in their life and they took certain paths and all of it seems so intentional and well thought out especially in hindsight but often that's not the case often a lot of people are something they are from the sum of a lot of happy accidents or uh, just random decisions taken on very instant or instinctive decisions uh what what were some of these tell me a little bit about your mfa program you said you didn't want to specifically teach what was your first vision of what you wanted to do well i guess because of the generation i came up in i i imagined i could just somehow make art and i wasn't very practical about thinking about how i was going to do that <laughs> it's uh-huh. a different era but you know it's interesting that when i was in graduate school, I kind of fell into uh, and working in advertising just as a way to make money. You know, just it was art related. It could have been anything, but I did do that. And, you know, after doing that for some years, even past when I left graduate school. And at that point, most people I knew were looking for teaching jobs. And we were told, well, there's hundreds of you across the country looking or thousands of you across the country looking for jobs with your MFAs and there's not that many teaching jobs so you better figure out what else you could do and that was you know the cold slap and that was okay so I was already working in advertising and eventually interestingly enough that led to toy design a friend of mine called me and said have you noticed that they're advertising for art directors at Mattel. And my first thought is, gee, I don't know if I could get that. And my friend, wonderful friend said, well, you won't know till you try, will you? And so I, you know, went for an interview and then I ended up coming to work for Mattel and went from uh, really their graphics to their product design. And when I fell into product design, oddly enough, that was just the first time I ever had a job that I loved you know, where I was making a living at something I loved. It was very different from fine art. And yet there was enough there that was similar. You know, I was designing and I was drawing. I think that's most important. I was drawing and I was inventing. And so even though it's different from fine art, it was, it still fed my soul, you might say. And it was still something that I could do that I enjoyed. And also, it was a community of some of the most interesting people. I mean, people from all over the world had come to Mattel, very gifted people that were the ones who built things and invented things and drew and did all kinds of things. And yes, everybody complained about, you know, it's working for a company. We don't agree with the company about this, that. But it was still a wonderful community of artists. And it was it was a very good job. And I did that for a number of years and still did my drawing and painting on the side, but it did become more of a side thing during those years. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned graphic design. Is, is Was there a jump from even uh, doing pursuing an MFA in fine art to then go to graphic design? Was there a shift in the skill set that you needed? Were there things that you yes. had to learn to do that oh, job? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you ask really good questions. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's so true. I, I, I'm not a good graphic designer. I, I'm, that's not my forte. But, you know, there's certain things that do translate. I mean, you know, it's a visual thing as far as, as putting together parts and pieces. Um, and I was doing probably more illustration than actual graphic design. Like I said, I know I'm not a great graphic designer. But, you know, I could uh, certainly illustrate anything. But the way I had to start thinking about as somebody said to me, think about it as if it's brand new, because I was doing some sort of fine art drawing with crinkly lines for a product. And my boss is like, no, no, you have think about that as if something is brand new and someone will want to buy it. <laughs> and I think that's like, oh. I, I had to shift an aesthetic sense at that moment that I think has been hard to shake. But the world of, you might say, commercial art, illustration, and for and product design, that's a world where things should be shiny and new and polished. And the fine art world, at least for me, is not about that at all. <laughs> it's something very, uh, you know, much more organic. And it's like, those were kind there's like sort of two aesthetics that had to live side by side for a long time. Does that make any sense? It 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 does, but I do yeah. want you to go deeper into this because what I sense, at least from the outside, is that this uh, commercial art, like the term itself implies that you are responding to some kind of market needs. You needed mm-hmm. to appeal to not... Uh, so uh, fine art can be successful even if it doesn't appeal to a majority um, a big mass of people it needs to appeal to a smaller in fact it does need to appeal very much to a minority of people in order for the artist to be very successful but commercial art needs you to appeal instantly to a distracted mass of people yeah. so tell me a little bit about that that kind of mentality change that is a that's an excellent point what you just said it it is it's like mass market you know when you go to work for a company like mattel toys you know or any or you're you're in that world it's very much about instant read and you know you get involved with what looks good on a tv commercial and that was very much you know if you're in a marketing meeting that's you know they want to that's what your pitch is it's always in a way it's about what's the instant read you know and yet at the same time it's not a successful toy for example unless it has layers unless it has something that's interactive and that's again now coming back to being an educator and working with students in toy design you know is yes you want it to have an appeal but we really always encourage students to think deeper about that about what what's going to engage a child it's not just something that's going to you want to grab off the shelf and we always had that kind of weird uh, sort of <laughs> opposites going on in the business as well. And that's why I always say I was, I'm not fond of the toy business. I always enjoyed the creative side of that. But, you know, they do go hand in hand, but they are kind of opposites. Yeah, yeah. It also strikes me as you say that that sometimes this kind of friction between two opposing forces, so uh, an artist thinking about the creative side versus uh, somebody thinking about the the financial side of things or the marketability of a product. Does it sometimes uh, like there are arguments against this kind of friction? 
arguments for the superiority of creativity let's say in a sense or the superiority of art but are there any good arguments in favor of this as well do you sometimes does it sometimes lead to the creation of something that is greater than any one of them could have come up with you mean just the idea of collaboration that's equal so to speak like positive friction oh oh i'm sure that's true i mean i'm sure that's true i think in a way that's where innovation you know real innovation comes from is because you know a lot of creative people are not the ones that are going to get something out there you know and really put it out there they're happy to be just creating it you know i mean it's it's if the partnership is respectful i guess you might say on both sides and understanding that one needs the other and i think that's always i think more and more that is the goal you know is for there to be like just it's a creative partnership and understanding that you know we're bringing different things to this project because that's really the way things get out there yeah yeah because there's this tendency we have to think of a uh, creativity as something very pure and the moment we think we bring the commerce element into it it becomes impure and uh, coming into art from the outside i tend to sometimes push back against this idea which it feels almost like a bit of a superiority complex but at times this superiority complex is also there as a form of shield to protect us from like to protect our creative energies in a in a safe bubble it's you know and i honestly think there's a there could be some generational things there too i remember i think i like i said i think i was a generation that you'd hear people say oh you can't sell out or you know don't prostitute your art and that you that kind of idea and i remember when i first started teaching in my students that they'd look at you like what are you talking about i just want to get my art out there you know i just want to make a living doing it what what is it and it just made no sense to them and i think it makes somebody like me go you know you're right <laughs> that doesn't make sense let's let's find a way to make these and but it but really there it there's always going to be there're different world views quite frankly they mm-hmm. really are and i think getting those two world views to mesh is not the easiest thing you know you can't you re, they you have to say that yes they are two different things that somehow have to come to intertwine and work together but it's not necessarily natural and it isn't without effort <laughs> no do you find uh, such uh, the need for such skills in the single person so we were speaking about just now about an artist and then somebody on the business side of things uh speaking to each other communicating with each other in a positive way but with the rise of more freelance artists and freelance design professionals and creatives do you find that the single person has to now have both of these skills and both of these sides of their brains functioning together more i think that is more true uh, but the truth is some of us just are more inclined one way or the other I mean that's just the, that's just the way it is but I do think we you know we should never say well gee I I couldn't do that I couldn't I couldn't promote myself and I do think it's gotten so much easier to do that and boy there are I mean just take a look at Instagram I mean it's amazing how many wonderfully creative people are incredibly able to promote themselves in a way that that just didn't happen before so it's a very quickly moving stream out there yeah yeah um 
Now, I, I want to go back to the toy industry at the time you entered it. Can you describe what it was like to, like, how, how did how did the system work? What was what was uh, hot at that time? What was radical? How, what was the whole process behind bringing a toy to life? Well, it's interesting you say that because I still remember the president of the time, Ray Wagner, getting us all together, and this was in the 80s, and saying that, design and you know the design and development you are the heart of the company you're what really makes everything work and i would say within 10 years it shifted you know he left he retired and it became much more marketing driven and i think honestly i think that's when you started to have more of a sense of us and them in in that kind of environment i i think i think that's changed a lot since I haven't worked in house for many years, but I I think it's much more of a partnership than it was then. But there really was a sense of you know it's us and them. They don't understand us, <laughs> and what's wrong with those people? And there was a lot of that. But it really at one time I think it was more the design and development came up with stuff, and it would be the marketing people to figure out how to position it. You might say. And it really kind of shifted. That's what that shift meant, is that the the drive or the request for new product was really coming more from the marketing side and asking and sort of treating the creatives a little more like, well, just get it done for us. So, right. you know, I think it's, I, I hope that that balance has shifted, you know, because I saw it kind of go from more from one side to the other. And I hope now it's kind of more understanding what we were what we were saying is that there's an appreciation that we need both of these parts to get anything done right right speaking of just the design and development can you describe to me how it would go like what is the first uh, ideation stage of say a new toy maybe you can tell me about something specific that you worked on mm. what is what is the process what is what are the steps towards uh, like from paper, from idea to paper to reality, wh- what are the steps involved here? Who does what well, kind of things? It's very rare that something would come out of nowhere. I mean, it does, I guess, happen once in a while. But oftentimes, you know, we, the, com- the company would be looking at inventor ideas. And oftentimes they would look at something that, oh, there's something, what can we do with that? You know, there's a there's an idea here. What can we do with that? Or we might say, gee, we were look we're looking for a specific something. We're looking for a doll that does this, or or you know, we're looking for something that we see in the market is really we want to get into that trend. You might say, and there's a lot of brainstorming. A lot of brainstorming goes on, and out of that, you know, we kind of everybody looks at, well, gee, where are the viable ideas? And then from there things start to get developed and it might be a matter of drawings, prototyping anymore. It's much more digital prototyping. You know, the, it used to be actually making physical mock-ups, which I'm sure there is still a certain amount of that, but it's much more digital now, you know, as far as 3d modeling and that kind of thing. So all my students are learning that, you know, they learn some traditional sculpting, but they really spend a lot of time learning things like Rhino and ZBrush and things so that they're able to do 3D envisioning and modeling and and developing prototypes. Right. Yeah. I I recently saw this show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. Mm Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of a lot of toys that I grew up with, uh, He-Man figures and G.I. Joe figures. Right. And... It was talking about this. Uh, so 
uh, I, uh, you just said that you know someone has to uh, bring attention to this space in the market that there is a certain age group which needs something which uh, represents something else mm-hmm. so there are lots of interesting factors that come into this who who is that age group what kind of pop culture element do we want them to have fun with do they enjoy already that we can capitalize upon mm-hmm. so something like uh something like gi joe which came after a war or something like um like i was looking at one that came out of a so the teenage mutant ninja turtle toys came mm-hmm. out of comics which were started and then the, the interest in the comic meant that now we can uh we can uh spin off into toys and action figures so can you uh, so uh, i i'm curious to know how like is there something that you remember that you worked on about how it originated and how that need for it was felt and I, i'm uh, did you also work on the sculpting part of things these these skills uh, are very interesting to me because yeah. i i just want to know more about how it was done before because of course now we know that so much is done with software but uh, the the iterative process of working by hand and alternating between drawings and figures and models is quite interesting Oh well again going way back I can remember when I used to do I mean I mainly am a 2D person and I would draw and and uh you know do mainly illustrations but when I started in the toy business I worked with people who were 3D and I had a, a wonderful mentor who said the sooner you can get your idea into 3D the better and so he taught me a lot of things about just basic skills basic sculpting and i had done sculpting in college so i did myself do some prototypes i remember building a castle out of foam core you know and that was i don't know that anybody does that anymore to be honest with you but that was some years ago and i remember built sculpting i did some sculpting with the help of a model maker and then it would be turned over to someone who could really make it to where it's manufacturable and it would of course go through a lot of iterations as things did but uh yeah that's something i occasionally did do and it's i really am grateful to someone when you think when you're developing something that's 3d at some point it has to leave that piece of paper and start to uh go into a 3d form because you solve a whole bunch of different problems and you are doing the designing in 3d too. I mean, you know, the 2D is one idea and then as it starts to evolve into something three-dimensional, it 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 evolves. You know, suddenly you see things you didn't notice before or you get an idea to where you can take it because it's coming to life at that point. So, you know, for me it was actually physically building things and now it's really more doing it in 3D design. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah that's 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 quite that's that's a very interesting journey so much has changed so quickly and so many people in this industry are having to learn on the go and that that makes it creatively very interesting to me also that there is there are these creative challenges that keep coming into the game what's i like what you just said i mean it it is true i mean we're teaching toy designers in a toy design program at otis but i mean for me and for most people i knew it was learn while you earn i mean i came in with an mfa in drawing and painting and yeah. that didn't equip me really for the toy business but you know i'm curious about things i want to learn how to do things you know <laughs> and so i i loved the fact that it was an opportunity to learn about things that i wouldn't have known about otherwise that was that was what was really fun yeah 
but did it feel strange to you to uh, you know the the idea of fine art and the idea of then drawing 2d figures of toys did it feel like a strange transition did you always see it as positive or was there a time when you felt that you were doing something cheap almost so to say like this you know we have these moments of self doubt about what we're doing when we compare it sometimes to the goals we had in previous years oh good god that's for sure <laughs> i mean that's i think it was maybe when i was working on trolls i remember at one point i don't know if you remember trolls they've ha- they've gone through many versions this is before the current trolls but i remember working on a version of trolls and i just thought oh my god if my life drawing teacher could see me this but you know who was my great mentor but you know i just decided i'm going to draw this troll and i'm going to imagine is i'm going to draw it as if i were michelangelo and i know how ridiculous that sounds but it was i just thought i i'm going to just draw this as well as i can and i i thought well i'm lucky that as long as i am drawing something that hasn't been drawn i never particularly cared for drawing things that were character you know uh licensed characters because if i could draw something where mm-hmm. i'm inventing how it looks that made me happy as long as i was drawing and i was drawing something that didn't exist before you know it didn't matter if it was some little plastic doodad i could still I could still get pleasure out of making it and making it as interesting or, you know, just drawing it as well as I could. So that was my way around that <laughs> to to just do it as well as I could, I guess, and, and enjoy the process. So I'm very big on that. That's what I really teach to students is you've got to enjoy the process. It's so important. So uh, another aspect of toys, just staying on this subject, because it's, it's also a very important part of the kind of things i used to draw when i was a child i used to draw my gi joe action figures again of course. and, and yeah uh, had i had the the castle that he man used to live in castle grayskull i had that and it was populated by my gi joe figures instead of he man of course <laughs> of course yeah mm-hmm. about how uh, very quickly in the 80s and 90s even manufacturing technology improved and manufacturing and manufacturing possibilities are such a key component of what the toy becomes what it can do the features it has did that have an impact on were you would you were you required to closely understand that part of the scene as well in order to design better things or was that uh, something that was unrelated to your specific work That's a great question. Um you know you mentioned Castle Grayskull and I'm trying to remember but I can remember the first playsets that I saw were basically shells. You know, they there was not a lot of interaction or or moving parts or anything and that is just something that evolved and I was involved a lot in playsets. And so it's just you would we started to amass things that say well somebody tried this and what if you did this and so it's also even somebody like me that that's not my forte you'd go into a hardware store or the camera store and look at how a shutter works or look at how an uh, an egg beater works i mean you start to just you know you go out and you're just thinking it there is something about the way toy designers think that it's just you're always thinking about what could that be that's interesting what could that turn into you know and i've seen some wonderful things that would remind you of like a like a steamer basket you know just simple little mechanism jewelry boxes so 
that's so even though, though I have no engineering, I am that's not my training. It's not really the way I think, but it's always like you start to think like a toy designer, like how would I play without? How could I incorporate that? It's just your mind starts to just it just goes there. <laughs> and I think it's just a lot, you're kind of surrounded by that. And I also worked with a lot of people who that was just who they were. I mean, they, they were born tinkerers, you know, and then when you're around those kinds of people, that kind of rubs off on you too. So, you know, you start to think a little bit more like that. And, and then what would happen is we'd be developing <clears throat> these more and more elaborate kinds of play patterns that then you'd go into engineering and the cost people and they'd say if we tried to do that that would cost $150 we can't do that so then there's always okay what can we do that we can afford and then you'd see less of like the shell the castle grayskull shell and things made out of maybe much less material like just trying to or cheaper materials but trying to get more things that engage the the child to play out a story. Uh, can you give me an example? Oh gosh. Um well you mentioned uh um the teenage mutant ninja the teenage mutant ninja turtles, right? And I seem I have seen I'm not sure when these were done, but they did several versions of uh, play sets that are just these huge structures, but there's not a lot of plastic, but they're very, there's all, there's trap doors and things for them to go through and to turn. And there's a lot of mechanisms that you see over and over again, but a lot of it is a, now you see it, now you don't, or, you know, it gets you from one place to another, like the, the little elevator, the little, the little, you know, pulley, basic, basic kinds of little mechanisms. And you see, and and I remember just thinking how ingenious that was. I mean, the other version is like the Barbie, the Barbie house that, uh, oh, and there's there was one for Monster High that was just quite fabulous. And they become quite large, but they're, they manage to make something with the least amount of material that will stand up and give you just lots of things to move around. And then there's, of course, a lot of testing with children and finding out what do children really want. And sometimes I, I can't, I, I've had more involvement with things for girls. And for girls, sometimes it's like just give them a lot of little things that they can move around and place in places. And, you know, maybe not as many mechanical types of things, but things that are magic. You know, anything that feels like magic, you know, and again, it's that now you see it, now you don't. And sometimes you can do that with the simplest means. But, you know, really, I don't know if play sets are as big now as they were for a while, but it was interesting to see them go from big hulking chunks of plastic, which became so expensive, to things that would give you the most with the least amount of material. So, right. Yeah. Was was even the idea of uh, a child constructing a toy? So some of these GI Joe uh, uh, accessories, you would build it out of instructions. Was mm -hmm. that also tied to uh, this kind of thing? Like because that became part of the fun. That now I'm going to build a car, or I'm going to build one of these tanks that that the that the the person is supposed to occupy. 
Well, I'll tell you the truth. I know that was always a big discussion years ago in the toy business as whether that was a gender divide, you know, because we knew definitely we knew little boys love to that is a very important part of the play. And I think the commonly held idea was that that was not that interesting to little girls, which people like me who grew up playing with, you know, building things and making things, that's just like, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> and I, I would, I like seeing more and more, like the first time I saw the Legos for girls, you know, and people think that's really sexist, but I, you know, to me, what I saw was, it's an opportunity for, that invites a little girl and her parents or her grandparents. In other words, it looks like a girl's toy. Let's get it for her. But she gets to build something. You know? So, I mean, I do think that there, you know, we also we're seeing now more and more toys that are not geared to specific gender. Thank God, you know, and so that there's a lot more freedom. But I do think that that's such an important part of the play. And I think toys that don't include that kind of component are very um, they get children get bored with them very quickly. Right. Things that are, have more open-ended play are mm -hmm. always the best toys. Yeah, absolutely. In my opinion. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I'll actually I will come back to the idea of open-ended toys. But you gave me two very interesting points that I'm thinking about. Um, one of them, I'm I'm thinking about how these ideas evolved over time. Like this idea of uh, gender roles for specific toys. So certain toys are suitable for boys, certain toys are suitable for girls. Did you witness a, a shift in these ideas over time? And how did that manifest? What kind of conversations were happening? And uh, how, what, what were some of these pushing? Uh, what were some of the pushes that were made towards more gender neutral or introducing ideas from uh, that were fixed to one gender, but introducing them to the other? I think that to be honest with you, I think we're still in a in a very i think my students are going to be a much bigger part of that i think we're just seeing that i have a former student who i'm so proud of at mattel who's part of the team that developed uh there are a line of gender neutral dolls and i just was so excited to see that and so proud of her for doing that i'm sorry i'm at the moment i'm not remembering the name of that line i'm sorry linda but it's yeah it's i just think that's so brilliant but there's always going to be a place for things like the really, really girly girl toy. And, and it's just, thank goodness. I think we're starting to realize that they should be available to everybody, just like what we think of as quote boys toys should be available to everybody. And I think that's what we're going to see more and more of, you know, right. and although there's always been a category that in the toy business was called make and play. And that's always my favorite category. And that is something that for the most part is gender neutral. And that's like the Play-Doh, everything that's like an activity that's really about making. And I think that's always been a very, you know, and so sometimes there are very gender oriented toys in that area. But, you know, it's it's much more of a fluid category in itself. Yeah, um, another point you mentioned about having toys that looked like they were suitable for girls, but involved, um, quote unquote, boyish uh, games like construction or building things. Uh, you said that it would appeal to the parents or the grandparents who would be induced into buying it. And that made me think about how there's a shift also in the identity of the buyer that until a, a couple of decades ago, it was presumed that 
the person holding the money is the parent or a, an elder relative or a grandparent or something like that but today you can market directly to the children they are the ones spending the money themselves well i think th- that's a good point i i don't know how much they're the ones spending the money but i mean if you think about adver- saturday morning advertising you know and the to- i mean the toy companies have been marketing to children for many years with the idea that they're going to just pressure their parents or they're going to say this is what i want for my birthday or christmas but you know we've always at least when i was and again my my direct involvement with the business side of toys is not current so i i can't speak to that but i know during that time that i was involved with that i mean that was always a discussion as to who's really pushing the purchase you know and we know that parents and grandparents are not always going to see the same thing that the child sees but there are toys that have become hugely successful because the child loved it you know yeah yeah i'm thinking of uh, this movie that i saw uh, growing up called jingle all the way it was arnold schwarzenegger in a christmas movie and it was about him as a father looking last minute uh, searching for this toy that his son oh, yeah. really really wanted mm-hmm. and I- i'm thinking about how that creates this demand for that toy like so many films are centered around it so many well tv shows become toys animated tv shows and cartoons become into toys so that's always an appeal and today now you have uh, directed uh, sp- uh, youtube advertisements to children on on uh, youtube children's TV, uh, youtube channels true yeah well and you know most properties now are come from entertainment you know they're not they don't come from the toy side you mentioned he-man and he-man really came from the toy right. and you know and barbie certainly and there are some examples of that but you know so often it is the other way around and but i do think like my students and i tell them this you know you as a toy design student you could end up working on the entertainment property and people who are now studying you know entertainment design end up developing the toys because those they're right together you know i mean they're not really separate the way they used to be yeah does that do something to the toy designer then i mean if you see that there are more uh, the predominance is that the the toy the identity of the toy the style of the toy the design of the figure comes from popular entertainment doesn't that restrict the role of the toy designer in a yes. sense how much how much room <laughs> is there for the guy who in or the person who invents the toy well that's it i mean the interesting thing is like i i worked on the last thing i was doing when i was in house at mattel was i was on a disney team and so whenever a film came out you know we would go to disney and see you know do quick sketches of their development and start to try to do a parallel development along with what they were doing but we you know this is what i did not enjoy because for me i i mean coming up with what something looks like was a big part of what i love to do and and that would tend to be dictated by the entertainment property you know so the uh the people so then the job becomes how do we tell the story and that just became less and less interesting to me to be honest with you because it's like well the story's already been told so we're just basically coming up with clever ways to play that out in the toy and that at least to me personally was not very interesting but yes that 
does really change. And, and I, it's one of the reasons I thought I, I thought seriously about trying to get into the entertainment world and, and be at that creative end. And that, you know, that did not happen, but I did look at that seriously. And my friends who are in that business would say, well, why do you want to do that? You're doing just fine where you are. And I, and, you know, they would say it's like you think you'll have more creative freedom, but you won't necessarily. <laughs> That's, so, it, you know, I just thought, well, OK, you know, I, I kind of I think I began to understand kind of back to the our other quote fine art world is that, you know, ultimately you it's so good to just maintain your own practice because when you're doing art for a living, you might say, ultimately, you it's never, you don't have the last word. You just don't, you know, and you, I, I think that's, I can, I've, <laughs> was it, there's a say that I, the toy business has been very, very good to me. I'm paraphrasing somebody who, an athlete who said something like that, but you know, yeah, the toy business has been very, very good to me. I mean, it's opened up some amazing doors. You know, I ended up doing work for the Vatican library. Oddly enough, I, I got to go see the first Mars Rover prototypes at JPL. There's things that have, there's do interesting doors that have opened because I was in the toy business, but you know, it's, at a certain point, I thought, I really want to go back and find my path, you know, my own path that I had that's that where I, I kind of have the last word, you might say. Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the influence of the entertainment industry and how that manifests in something which has got so much back and forth. Like uh, we talked about entertainment, the entertainment industry uh, almost standing over the toy industry in the mm -hmm. sense of being able to give directions. This is what you want because this has made so many millions of dollars. It is already popular. Get to executing it. But now I'm thinking of the direction, uh, sometimes when it goes in the reverse direction after mm -hmm. coming from there, and I'm thinking of Lego Bat the Lego Batman movie, for example, which was hilarious and super fun. And it was almost like Batman, a comic to movie to toy to movie again. Well, and, but I mean, I haven't seen the film, but what I would mention is, as you know, Lego was a super strong brand and identity so that it, they can call, you know, they can have that, that, uh, you know, they can call the shot, so to speak, because, you know, hey, we are Lego and that, and we have the way we have that kind of a loyalty, you know, out mm -hmm. with our people who understand who we are. I'm not saying it right, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. 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 Um, now I'm thinking about how things changed in the, in the, like actually pretty much the time that you came into the toy industry, things have started to shift in terms of the, the meat, the different mediums of uh, entertainment or play that are available to children. Immediately mm -hmm. we had these video games and then those became computer video games. And those have become PlayStations and X and gaming consoles. And I'm thinking about how, uh, how, how, how do toys stay relevant in this world? Was there also a shift in the, in the purpose or the utility of a toy? Oh, sure. Time? Absolutely. I mean, again, this, I'm just going to give you my opinion, but I'm sure I, I'm not alone in that, but that children are always going to need to be able to manipulate things three-dimensionally, just feel pick things up, move them around, you know, and uh, 
use their hands and their minds to to manipulate things to see how things work i mean you can and and we know that the electronic games are going they're a fact and that's just a, such an important that's not going away and uh there you're going to probably see a lot more things tied to that we already are seeing that right you know that it's we see things where the the physical component is tied to the the um the virtual component but there's just going to always be a need for kids to do things to develop their bodies and to play in a variety of different ways yeah i've i've often thought about that because i grew up with uh, action figures and physical toys and then while i was still young there was the influx of uh, computer gaming and that mm-hmm. was so attractive and it it changed so many paradigms all of a sudden so mm-hmm. many things were possible that were not possible before so many mm-hmm. uh, games let's say that were possible to me that i had never envisioned being actually possible and but because my early earliest nostalgia is still with physical toys i still have an attachment towards how that works and i remember i made this uh, little web comic many many years ago like 12 uh, 11 or 12 years ago and i was talking about how when i grew up and this is how i framed it that our imaginations uh, the 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 limits of our of our gaming or our fun were defined by our own imagination and not the power of our graphics cards Mm. but today you find that even in the most open world game your rules are defined for you by what the game lets you do or what it incentivizes you to do versus mm-hmm. what a toy is a toy is just anything you want it to be so uh one more thing that uh, i mean i'm thinking about is how now with toys becoming collectibles you have toys being bought by people who don't intend to play with them right. who don't intend to even manipulate them at all or even take them out of the wrapping and w- was this something that was foreseen or has the, is this something that's completely blindsided people who make toys i to be honest i think that's been around for a very long time i mean even when i was a child 100 years ago i mean a toy was given to me that was supposed to sit up on a shelf and be just a beautiful doll and i think uh my mother just said well let her play with it you know and of course some years later i saw this thing that was just destroyed and i cried and i saw this doll with its hair all pulled out and and i said well why didn't you just keep it up on the shelf and i and i understand i like that my parents gave it to me but i there was a part of me that really grieved for the fact that this was so beautiful and i've destroyed it but there has always been this category of the toy that sits on the shelf that we don't touch which children have a really hard time understanding but that's kind of an adult thing and i think it is very tied to nostalgia you know and and to be honest all the years i was at uh mattel they always had collectible barbie and collectible barbie was its own category and those were the those are expensive and those you know but that always existed and it just got bigger you know and i think but that added to that now there's a lot of things that are bought and stay mib mint in box you know and that's i think that did surprise the toy business the degree to which that's and so they try to sort of market to that but i think that's a little unpredictable because you never know really you know sometimes the thing you market to be collectible is not as interesting as something that it just kind of happens so it's it's again i'm not an expert about that kind of thing that's just my observation 
Yeah, yeah. And sometimes things catch interest in completely unpredictable ways. What will become, what will have nostalgic value is not something you can always predict. It's most unlikely things at, on some occasions. Exactly. A beanie yeah. baby. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so coming to coming to art, uh, tell me a little bit about how now you're you're doing this job. You're a character designer for toys. What what is the role of art in your life at this time? How do you move towards? Uh, what caused the shift towards bringing a little more pure art or drawing or painting back into your life? Well, I I can remember when I first was working at Mattel. I just I I think I had a job that was pretty stable. And mm-hmm. it, I, I had a certain amount of time that I could on my own. And, and I just got back to serious painting. And I was doing a lot of uh, exhibiting and doing large-scale watercolors. And that was just a very separate part of my life. And I think somehow there was more upheaval later on. The, uh, the job I had became more demanding. And it, the, the fine art part of me took a back seat for a long time. It never completely went away. But it just really, really kind of went to the back seat. And I don't think it was until I finally left Mattel for the last time in the 90s, uh, late 90s, and I started freelancing where I just thought, this, I have to do this. This is, this is, it's like something, the big part of me is just, you know, it doesn't die, but it needs cultivating. You know, that part of us needs cultivating. And so I think it was in the 90s, late 90s, I left Mattel. I got a, a painting studio and I started to really start to cultivate a practice again where I was doing something all the time. And, you know, but again, it was maybe some years after that, a few years after that, I discovered urban sketching. <laughs> but, you know, this the studio work just wasn't, I really wasn't going anywhere with it. I mean, it was there, but, and I was still, of course, I was freelancing with a toy business for uh, for my income. But uh, and doing other kinds of entertainment design. But, you know, it's really when I discovered urban sketching that that turned a major corner for me. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's come slowly towards urban sketching. I'm curious to know once you uh, reopened a studio for fine art after after so many years in toy design. Was there a change in the kind of artist you were? Like, how? in what way did your work in the toy industry seep into your perceptions or understanding or expression of art? I don't know that. I think I kept them in my mind pretty separate. But it's interesting that going back to the boss who said to me, make it look like it's new, you know, <laughs> I that that had really stayed with me and I thought I think I have to relearn how to draw and right. I think just I did that by drawing and I started drawing from the model again and you know going to life drawing sessions and just drawing and and trying to find just you know I thought okay to, I always think of drawing as being as personal as handwriting and that your line is like your handwriting it's very very it's just who you are and and yet I thought have like kind of polished it beyond recognition I thought no I you know I, I found I could have different hands so to speak I think that's when I also discovered that every time you pick up a different tool it changes your, the way you think 
you know, and that's something that I teach now too. It's just very interesting to me that when you're working with a, a coal erase pencil or a digital tool, you know, you have a certain um, way of approaching the line and it affects the way you think, you know, and as soon as you pick up a different tool, like a giant uh, pastel or a, a big brush or something, it's, it shifts everything. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of just shifting scale, shifting, trying different materials, you know, kind of going back and excavating about the things that I care about the most, you know. So it was a certain amount of inner work, too, of really delving into what is it that I really, really am interested in and really care about. And so there was a lot of that kind of work that was going on in that time after I left uh, full time. And uh, before I found urban sketching. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that very interesting. And I really resonate with this, with what you said about different tools uh, being being manifested different ways on the page by us. Because my learning process for art, uh, as an adult at least, when I became really serious about wanting to learn to properly draw, it uh, I, I found liberation with the iPad. And I would draw uh, a lot with the Apple Pencil on the iPad screen. And I think it's the best digital art tool that I've used. I've enjoyed it so much. But it was very different from how I would draw with a pencil or a pen. And a lot of it has to do with the tactile sensation of the nib on the paper. Exactly. Yeah. And even something like uh, the fact of whether you can or cannot undo what you're doing <laughs> would mean you know, the the cost of a line, let's say. In digital art, the cost of a line is nothing. You can undo back for 200 uh, strokes. So you can keep going, you can do whatever you want and you can come back to it. You can add layers and you can hide layers. So you can always re-examine something you did three hours ago and go back to that stage and resume again. And it has a lot of positives being oh, gosh, able to experiment yes. like that. Mm -hmm. But it also has a lot of negatives if you don't, if, uh, and I was just speaking about it with my previous guest about how uh, once you eliminate this cost, what is it that we are taking a chance with and whether, whether there is, uh, so we were talking about how if you work more in digital, you start to lose the element of discovery in the sense of the art becoming more than anything you expected from it. Hmm. And uh, there is a sense, especially with something like watercolors. Watercolors are a medium that have a delayed reward. It it takes yes. a different form after it dries. Uh -huh. it, uh, uh, the, the way it dries on the paper, it does something that you did not explicitly plan to do with it. And it can surprise you in that sense. And so there's an element of going into it with faith that it's going to become something. And maybe it's something that I have not even imagined I could have done. Exactly. But that that sort of tends to go away from the digital medium because everything is very deliberate. Everything is exactly what you thought about, whether you succeeded in it or you didn't succeed in it. And there's no there's no uh, uh, what uh, post factum discovery of the of in the art. How do you I, feel about I that? I wonder. Well, I don't know. I you know, and I would, I know exactly what you mean in terms of that. I have often wished there was an undo button on my watercolors but you know the fact that there isn't means you are committed and you're gonna find a way to make it work or turn the page but I'm I you know I'm thinking about our friend Rob Sketcherman and when I see what he does he does digital art 
in with the same spirit. Somehow he brings that. And I've seen other, I think of Uma and I think of some other people we know who do digital art, but be, maybe it's because they have the uh, traditional art background and as mm-hmm. far as their tools and way of thinking, I see that same spirit. So I have to assume that they're experimenting. I'm sure they know how to use that undo button, but you know, I see them bringing that kind of experimenting. So I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of separate them that quickly, but I do know what you mean because quite frankly, I mean, when you're, uh, <laughs> when you're doing something with watercolor, which is wonderful because it can, you know, you can control watercolor or you can let it do its thing. And when you let it do its thing, that's when you have magic that can happen. And I'm kind of just still pushing myself more in that direction and less control, more let it do its thing. And it it is like, okay, now what? It becomes taking that next step and where does that lead? And then where does that lead? I would imagine you could do that with digital art as well. You know, I would hope so. Because that's what makes it exciting is not having it all figured out in the beginning, you know, letting the process take you from one step to the next. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Uh, Interestingly, uh, with both Rob and Uma, I'm just amazed at the way they produce their art. And uh, so I think there is some element of putting in these constraints of not overusing the undo button. So putting a self-limiting constraint of how much you will undo. Uh, There are limits of the number of layers you might play with. There is also a limit that most good digital artists do, which is to not get lost in the, you know, to uh, to not get lost in the possibilities of the millions of brush tools you could possibly choose between. So you restrict yourself to a very small uh, set of trusted brushes. And within that, you uh, dive, you dig deeper and deeper. And that's where the magic comes from. I know oh, that totally one of makes them, sense. Yeah. I know one of them, I'm not sure if it's Uma or Rob who told me that they don't zoom into their canvas when drawing, when painting on the iPad. Oh, interesting. And that makes, that makes such a difference. It, it's such a very uh, an analog way of doing things and to not use an advantage that the digital medium was giving you, but to not use it very intentionally in order to get this benefit from it. So uh, one thing that happened with me when I was working with the digital medium was that I did not, uh, I, I reached a, an impasse where I found that I was not really getting better the way I wanted to get better. The The people whose art I admired were doing something that I simply did not understand. And I realized in my case, the reason was that I was using a lot of digital brushes without ever having used the traditional version of those brushes. Hmm. So I didn't know what it was supposed to do. And I would use, whether I was using the 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 marker brush or whether I was using a specific kind of oil emulating paintbrush, I was using it in the same way. And the my tactile sensation from the iPad surface was the same irrespective of what brush I chose. So that's the point at which I decided that I need to go to these real things and I need to use them so that I can understand how to use them properly in the way that they're meant to be used in the digital medium. Oh, you mean not in the, so within the digital medium, you were trying out the basic tools. Well, uh, in the digital medium, I found that I had reached a certain level. I had learned certain things from doing it. So being able to play with color was useful because now I'm a little more, uh, I understand colors a little better. 
being able to undo my lines meant that i understand that i am capable of getting to a really nice picture if i just push with it it's possible for me to do it but i need to now use the real fountain pen or the real watercolor oh, okay. brush on actual paper yes you know, if i really want to understand what it means to hold so much water and press down with exactly. this kind of weight with a brush right so that makes sense mm-hmm. and then you mentioned this thing about how the media uh, the the kind of brush you use defines the kind of line you make and i had this very real uh, experience of that when i tried to merge later as i developed my ink drawing style i tried to merge them i tried to replicate the same thing the same kind of look for the same kind of subjects on the ipad and i just couldn't do it even mm. after getting really good with my fountain pen i couldn't draw on the ipad the way that i draw with fountain pen on paper with that same flair or with that same kind of final uh, minimalist look that i that i put to my art and that is still a stumbling block for me well a digital artist like rob could or uma could probably <laughs> to, i i don't know and maybe it is always going to just be different i mean it just i know that when i took a class from rob it's like i was excited about what i saw but i you know i missed the tactile sense of and i think maybe you just get used to you you maybe you overcome that so to speak in order to do what he does but um you know for me there is i love the variation in the tactile sense between different tools on paper you know that is huge to me so let's take a short break here so that i can thank my sponsors my sponsors are listeners just like you who support me either through ad hoc micro payments or a small monthly commitment this podcast resides upon the promise of the creator economy that good content can thrive on the internet with micro levels of support from the various people who enjoy it i like this equation a lot because i like being accountable to myself and i like being accountable to the passionate listeners who are equally invested in the quality of my work this week a listener elected to become a sneaky art insider and left me a wonderful message here's what kathy said when she signed up i am supporting you in gratitude and for anyone who can't but has found as much value in your work and art as i have I have only started building this group of insiders since April of this year and it has already made a huge difference in the way that I approach my work. Insiders give me the mandate to explore further with my curiosity and to make the kind of content that I most enjoy. The result is that we have a better show for all listeners while at the same time manifesting a stream of giveaways, rewards and bonus content for the insiders. Allow me a minute now to take you through a couple of ways to support this show. If you like this episode or if you've enjoyed a previous episode, you can hit the button in the show notes to buy me a coffee. It's a small and simple indicator of your support and a great way to reach out and start a conversation. You can tell me what you like about the show or as a recent supporter did, suggest a few guests that I should have for a future episode. all you have to do is buy me a coffee if you like this show and the kind of work that i've been doing now for 30 something episodes 
And if you're ready to see the bonus content that I'm making around these different conversations, hit the button in the show notes to become a sneaky art insider. Insiders get access to all kinds of wonderful rewards. This month, I've given out 10 copies of my books in raffles, made bonus commentaries about my favorite tangents from past episodes, shared postscript conversations with recent guests, and also published some passages from my next book, Sneaky Art of Vancouver. In the show notes, I'm linking to some content that I've recently created for insiders. They've been made temporarily open to free reading and listening, and should give you a taste for the kind of work that I'm doing. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Virginia. We come to the subject of urban sketching and how this once again transformed the trajectory of her art practice. We talk about taking inspiration as well as permission from other artists and some of the particular things she enjoys doing when out sketching on location. Enjoy. Um, so let's let's come to urban sketching. I'm I'm very curious because you have studied to be an artist. You, uh, uh, drawing and painting and designing has been a part of your professional life for so many years, and then now uh, later after that you had a studio in which again you were making large scale paintings. How did you come to urban sketching, and what did it have to still offer you that you did not already have from other sources? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes into my mind is community, because I'm one of those people that I always thought about making art as very solitary. I mean, of course, I took classes and I, I in school, I had friends who were artists, but I don't, I did not really have an art community anymore. And, um, but I think it was just this idea of going outside and drawing what's there. <laughs> and I, I think I had you might say kind of gotten too much in my head and my, I just wasn't excited about what I was doing in my studio. I felt kind of like, okay, I don't know where I'm going and I'm not exactly sure. I just, I think I started looking online at different websites and I indirectly found urban sketchers. And as soon as I, and that would have been uh, probably early 2009 and I sent a message to Gabby and said, this, I, how do I get involved with this? And he wrote back to me and said, well, you know, check out Flickr. And, you know, we asked people to post on Flickr. And so I discovered an art community on Flickr. <laughs> and these were people who were all over the country and all over the world. You know, uh, Singapore, uh, Europe, uh, everywhere. Um, just this opened that idea of discovering a community of artists that are everywhere and that are just drawing and painting and posting their work. And it wasn't just urban sketchers, but it was this international community. That's like all the lights came on. And then, but specifically what Gabby and the other urban sketchers were doing, I was excited by. Um, I've just always to me, art groups, that have a certain hierarchy, you might say, that you have to get, you have to have, reach a certain level to get in and have a status. I hate that. I mean, I cannot tell you that is such an anathema to me. I mean, I know some people, I, I you know, I know if that's something that people love or enjoy, great. It's just something I 
personally cannot stand. And what I loved about Urban Sketchers is that it's the most, and I tell people, this is the most democratic organization you will ever find. And, you know, what I love is I discovered people in Urban Sketchers that I just am in awe of, especially some of those architects, you know, and uh, that just do these amazing drawings of things that are, I never thought I could do that, you know, but I just am in such admiration and, and people who are working in every conceivable style, you know, and I, but, you know, now I've become part of this, uh, you know, it's, it, it was more, maybe you might say the beginning of urban sketchers were more people who were practicing artists in some way, you know, but a lot of them were not professional artists, but they were certainly practicing artists. They did it all the time and they did it in the most unique and original ways. And that to me, I cannot tell you, I mean, I thought this is what I want to be a part of, you know, and I, and I loved that they were just, and I thought I, I, I'm a Los Angeles native and I want to go out and discover my city in a way I never have, you know, I'm proud to be a Los Angeles native. I want to just, you know, and what is it about my city I really want to focus on? And I kind of discovered I like drawing everything. And it was about uh, having a sense of place. And, and so I think I just completely uh, thought about making art in a completely different way. And I don't even know if what I'm doing is making art. And I honestly am not that concerned about it. You know, I just love being engaged with what I'm drawing and you know, I mean, you know, as an urban sketcher, you you uh, happen upon things, you know, you discover things and things happen before your very eyes that are just indescribable. And that's part of what we love about this. But it was discovering this community. And um, then in I guess it was in uh, 2009, maybe in the middle of 2009, uh, Gabby asked me if I'd like to be an urban sketcher correspondent. And I thought, wow, okay, yeah. So then I had, then that gives you a purpose. You know, I'm going to go out and draw because I'm going to report on this. You know, I knew, I, I just don't know what I, I, I'm not a reporter, but I mean, that was like, that gave me like a whole new purpose. And then I think within the next couple of years, I got to know some other local urban sketchers and became an instructor at that point. But that was as urban sketchers began to grow like wildfire and expand. So, yeah, so so many wonderful things. And I absolutely agree with you on so many points. Uh, I want to start with what you said about the hierarchy, because as an outsider to simply, then as an outsider to art itself, I think hierarchical structures are so bad for people who want to learn, but simply have no room to fulfill those early uh, strictures of the hierarchy, like not having an education, not having enough of the correct, quote unquote, correct tools, or knowing the right people. If you don't know these things, there's just no way in. And so there's no way to progress. And the most delightful thing for me about being an urban sketcher, and I discovered them, uh, incidentally, I discovered urban sketchers when I saw... Uh, an advertisement on a lamppost in Chicago huh. uh, talking about the Global Symposium. Wow, and really? That's how I heard about the word urban sketcher. And a few months later, I 
sort of kind of gate crashed the symposium because obviously there was no way to buy a ticket because tickets sell out within seconds. Yeah. But yes. I had no idea for that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to follow these guys around and see what they're doing. Oh, wow. And I, in, I happened, it, it's the greatest luck of my life that I happened to be in Chicago at that time trying desperately to learn to draw better because I was drawing these web comics, which were stick figures. And I just needed to draw better atmospheres and environments. And I was so enamored by Chicago. And I thought, this is how I'm going to learn. I'm just going to walk around and I'm just going to discover the city, which I love so much. And I love looking at these crazy American people, the things <laughs> they do that nobody in any other country would do so with such flair that Americans do with. And I'm going to observe them and I'm going to keep drawing these fascinating people who have so much freedom, literally freedom. And how can I not learn? Surely then I will learn how to draw. Surely that will work. And it was a few weeks after that feeling that I discovered that there's a hashtag called Urban Sketching and that Chicago has a chapter and that there is a global symposium happening. All of it came together and it felt like this was meant to happen because there's no way so many things can align so I, I got into it and I started hanging out with Urban Sketchers and it was so amazing. The the idea that, like you mentioned, that people come from so many different backgrounds and they are not necessarily professional artists. And I think the ones who are not artists and are not therefore Urban Sketchers in order to derive something that will then professionally benefit them, make their art better or make their expertise a little wider the ones who are doing it purely because they as adults have decided that this is a great use of their time. Those are simply the most fascinating people to me because they could be doing anything. They don't have to do, they don't stand to quote unquote gain in that direct gaining sense that an artist might gain from being part of Urban Sketchers or any artistic community. You are here because you really actually derive some real joy from this. And that is an, an even more pure feeling than a real artist deciding to become an urban sketcher. Well, except I have to say, I mean, I don't know if I was a real artist, but I certainly what I did all those years, but it was that joy that drew me, you know, and it's the joy of it that keeps me going. Because without that, it's why bother to me? I'd be, I could do something else, I suppose. But, you know, it's that it is, it is a joy. Yeah. And this idea that, like you mentioned, wanting this drive to explore your city and to find subjects and not know what the subject is going to be, but having that faith that you're going to put yourself out there and you will, something interesting is going to happen. And, and it you'll does. Be ready with, <laughs> it always does. And you're ready with your sketchbook to capture it. I think that was the first bit of permission that I took from. And this word permission is really big in my life the first bit of permission that I took from my fellow urban sketchers that I'm allowed to do this. This is not a strange thing. This is a valid pursuit of my creativity to just look at life and to just observe it and to draw it and to for that to be something that is interesting. It's worth something that I'm doing it. And this idea has always been in my, in my, in operated in my world in different ways. The things that I'm permitted to do the styles that I'm permitted to pursue, the idea that just with a fountain pen and just with a sketchbook, you can draw something and it could take just 20 minutes and you could you are allowed to call it art. You're allowed to call it art even if you don't have a degree in art. 
all of these things are little little bits of permission that i took over the months as i started to meet more urban sketchers so i'm a little curious you already spoke about a number of things but can you think of some more things that you even with your background in art things little bits of these permissions or ideas that you stole or borrowed or were inspired <laughs> by your fellow urban sketchers oh that is brilliant um the idea of permission oh it's it's constant i think you know and something i like to think that i i try to be a cheerleader when i'm teaching for people to have the permission to try something new to make a mistake because it's that's how you learn you know there's all those things but it's really true for me <laughs> is that for me to give myself permission to uh use color in a what might appear to be a completely random way but it's because it has a, a it feels a certain way and i think about the artists that i instantly fell in love with their work and it's so expressive and I think to to allow, give myself permission to be more expressive, I guess, is the is a good way to put it. And I think about KK is one of my heroes, you know, and because it's and I, I took his workshop in Chicago. I was an instructor and oh, boy, I got to take a workshop and I'd always wanted to take a workshop from him. So I just, you know, watching his process, there's just such a purity to how it moves across the page when he draws, you know, like it, it's his drawing. It's almost like it has a life of its own. There's so, it's so pure and it, it's, he has a lot of training and a lot of background and a lot of work has brought him to that point, but it looks like pure improvisation when he does it. And I, I just, I cannot tell you. It's like, I, I, I'm not going to try and be KK. I'm not KK, I, but I, but there's something I get from watching that and, and saying there's, you know, when you see somebody do something that you love so much and you feel so desperately you want to do that. I think there is a part of you that knows you can do that for you and you need to let yourself do it. And I think that's what I felt. So, you know, I, when the drawings that I'm happiest with are when I do let go, I give myself permission to let go and kind of let it, the drawing do its thing and not overwork it. The, my drawings that I'm the least happy with are the most overworked because I tried so much to control it, you might say. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love what you said about this kind of inspiration that we take from people. I find that I take inspiration even from people who dabble in media that I don't necessarily uh, seek to emulate. So one of my guests uh, back in episode 10 was Paul Wang in Singapore. And oh, sure. he described his work as uh, starting from what he called a heart space on the scene mm. and then radiating outwards. And he had these beautiful words like this, like heart space. He defined the way that he would... Uh, the, so I asked him about the way that he moves between these media. Like he has color pencils, he has ink, he has watercolors, and he's just, he's changing them without a set uh, order he seems exactly. to go to one whenever he feels like and he described mm -hmm. it in this beautiful way he called it a dance of line and color across the page and i didn't know he used that term that's very interesting and uh, paul is definitely one of my heroes too but i have taught a workshop called the dance of line and color and i don't know if i heard paul 
use that, but I mean, you know, it's possible. <laughs> but I, my, what I mean by dance of line and color might be a little bit different, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. And, and that's, I've always, I mean, KK kindly asked me to write a, a something for one of his books and that was, I described it as visual music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my goal <laughs> is to make my version of visual music, you know, that there's that kind of flow to it. Absolutely. And I think we, we, we're all in a very joyful place once we, once we reach some level of security about the, way, the, 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 the tools we want to dabble with. Or I, sometimes I think of it as the games that we want to play. But there are also mm -hmm. still ideas you can take from other people's games. So the, the idea of starting from a heart space, the idea of dancing across the page is an attitude. It doesn't have to mean that you have to work with watercolors or you have to work with right. color pencils. It's just a, mm -hmm. it's a more mental process of, again, letting yourself do certain things and letting mm -hmm. yourself, like seeding control is a very, very big factor here and it especially if you uh, in my case at least because I've struggled to learn for so many years of thinking of being convinced that there is just it's not possible there's no way that I'll be able to draw well stick figures are the end of it for me and I spent many years consumed by that idea after spending oh. many years trying to draw and failing until urban sketching just clicked like it just worked this is how I can learn. Finally, I know. So for me, it was a very big thing to then and coming into this idea that whatever, if you are ever going to draw well, it will have to be because you've acquired all of these skills and now you know what to do. And so it's a, it's a feeling about control again, that I'm going to have complete control over what mm. I do on the page and how it's going to happen. I'll just be this superior person who knows it. But that's not... That's not the way it works today. I, there's so much mm -hmm. more I know, of course, but I still have to give a like give it to my back burner. Like just take a back seat and let it happen in a sense. Yes, and then it plays itself out. Mm hmm. Yeah. Oh, but you're so right. I mean, it's interesting that you did not give up. You're even though there was something in you saying, "I'll just never be able to do better than this," but there was something in you that knew that wasn't true and pushed you to keep going right and so I think that that it is putting in the mileage as they say you know that if you it's somebody reminded me recently of if you someone told him if you keep painting something will happen <laughs> <laughs> and it's so simple but but really if you it's that practice it's you know we have to have as beings I guess we have to have a practice of something that we're doing and and then it's like letting go of the outcome, but noticing that once you have that practice in you, you know, that frees you yeah, right? to, to move to something that maybe you didn't know you were capable of. Yeah, so true. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell calls it the 10,000 hour rule in that yes. he eliminates, and it might, there, there are counter arguments, but he eliminates the idea of genius by saying that if you simply put in X amount of time, 10,000 being just a number, if you put in that kind of crazy amount of time, you will build skills to get to... I, I 100%. I didn't know that was who said that. But yes, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something will happen. 
something will happen right yeah and again this uh, idea of something will happen requires us to cede control in a sense we can't be deterministic about what will happen i am certainly not the kind of artist that i thought i would be i didn't think i would be an artist i just thought i'm going to be able to make some clever illustrations which will work because i'll be so funny about them so my idea always even with the idea that i i might be able to draw it uh, the determined idea at that stage was still that i'm going to be a writer who's going to make comics which will be appealing and the text will appeal primarily and the art will support that it never occurred to me until it started to happen that someone will want just the drawing and not care about what i've written around it and i'll i sort of accidentally became an artist someone of i posted a drawing of some scene in chicago on reddit and someone wanted to buy it and i just thought that was the most absurd thing why would you, why would you want to buy a drawing from me so uh that's wonderful there's this latest transformation that you just mentioned i want to come to that and ask you about it you mentioned uh when gabby asked you to become a correspondent and i'm curious to think about what that word then meant to you as an artist because you've you've transformed in some ways already you wanted to be a fine artist and then you became in a sense a designer uh working in a commercial space to fulfill yeah. certain specific demands that you and, a problem yeah. solver is a good word mm-hmm. and now the word correspondent so how how does that then fit and how do you see that how did you see that word and what did it mean to you how did it change the little few variables around what you're drawing and why you're drawing it oh that's such a great question um you do ask really good questions <laughs> and i i remember at the time i think when i first heard about that i was a little hesitant when he first mentioned it to me i thought i don't i don't know if that's what i do i think i just want to draw i think i just want to make the art and i don't and i cuz i knew that he was a reporter you know for the seattle times and i thought well i just don't know if i would do that and then i think after looking at the blog i realized well it's going to take different forms but it what it did is it made and i don't ever i'm not a reportage artist but it made me very aware that i had a mission <laughs> when i went out i felt like i was on a mission and i i knew that whatever i drew i may or may not post what i draw but it made me think about recording something in this present time at this moment and that was exciting to me and that added to that feeling of like an urgency mm-hmm. because i oh my gosh there's i live in a city where things change all the time los angeles and you know i there's countless things that i have drawn that a year later aren't there anymore you know or have totally transformed and so there's events i'll never <laughs> i'll never forget i was drawing this really interesting looking restaurant on the corner of sunset boulevard i had a project that I still want to continue of drawing my way all the way down Sunset Boulevard which is a very long boulevard and um I was drawing this really interesting looking restaurant and all of a sudden this herd of naked bicyclists comes around the corner turns the corner and it's like whoa so it's <laughs> quick trying to draw really really quickly the naked bicyclists i didn't even know about this i mean it's a thing that's in some other cities but also i didn't in chicago know. they yes it was i had no i had no idea but there they were and i thought this is obviously something that's an event 
somebody planned this. This didn't randomly happen. <laughs> and I thought, wow. So, I mean, that's just an example. But I was there to draw one thing, which I still did a drawing of, and it was almost finished. So I quick did another drawing of the bicyclists as they went racing by. I mean, you know, and that to me is that added to my feeling of I'm on a mission to try to capture something about where I live. I love that. You know, and, and I just even a day when you don't have naked bicyclists going by, you know, there's still a sense of I want to capture something that I'm seeing right now that I want you to see or I want you to understand about Los Angeles. Maybe you didn't know, you know, and I, I my first thought was I won't draw the touristy things because Los Angeles is famous for touristy things. I finally thought, well, why not? I mean, I draw it all. You know, so I've drawn the front of Grauman's Chinese theater, but not the theater, but the, the, you know, the footprints and the Hollywood sign and all of that stuff. I mean, but I, I like to think it's filtering through the way I see, you know, and it is, it's part of where I live, you know, and everywhere I go, I fall in love with the city. I just, that's just part of me. I, when I, I never knew I'd love Chicago. I didn't know anything about Chicago. I loved Chicago, you know, and if I moved there, I know I'd want to draw the things that everybody draws like the bean, you know, remember we had a joke at the time that you cannot leave Chicago without drawing the bean. They will stop you at the airport if you haven't drawn the bean. So of course I did that, but you know, I'd want to draw the little obscure alley, you know, to show people, oh, look at this moment where the light hits it a certain way, you know, that that became so I understood um, that idea of being a correspondent was much bigger than what I had imagined. Yeah, it, it sounds like the introduction of the artist into the art, like a very conscious filter of who am I in this place today? Yes. Mm hmm. You just said it in a nutshell. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's. It's. I. I like that idea because that's how I motivated my learning journey with art when I was in Chicago. So I start. I put myself through this self-imposed project that I called Thirty Days of Chicago. That mm. uh, to use my curiosity about the city and my need to explore the city, but also put myself through a daily drawing practice. So I thought, mm -hmm. okay, 30 days, uh, different neighborhoods, every day a different cafe or a different park or a different street. And I'm going to try to see what it is and I'm going to try to understand what it is. And part of that was also the fact that I had just left my academic career. So I had just quit my PhD program in the Netherlands. I'd moved to the US and I was trying to be a creative. And I was in this new world. America was just stunning to me in lots of respects. I a lot of it was so unexpected. Even after you feel like you see all the movies on the TV, you grow up on all these TV shows, surely you get it. But <laughs> so much of America was just, and Chicago is just a marvelous city. My favorite city actually is Chicago. Mm. So uh, there's just so much that takes you, uh, that, uh, take, uh, that just surprises you. And I thought that my job now is to make a note of all these things that surprise me, which I guess sounds a little bit like what you're saying as the job of a correspondent to see what is what is occurring to you today to be here. And that filter is very interesting to me. I was just articulating this in a in a post I was writing that there are there are two filters. There is there is what you see of the world. That's one filter of what you draw, but there is also 
why you see that and not something else because we always make these creative decisions of things we don't want to include in our art and the things we want to focus True. on the reason why uh, say if we sat by side uh, we sat side by side on a bench and drew in looking in the same direction we would draw completely different things i know looking at your art that the, a tree would be quite prominent in your work if you were <laughs> <Probably>. painting <laughs> and i would ignore the trees because <laughs> in a, as a line work artist it is just such a trial to draw leaves and trees and the details of all the branches that i would just look for anything around it that i can hide and ignore the tree with so um That's funny. one more question i have about your urban sketching now is i'm thinking about what uh, urban sketching how it has informed you how it has transformed your understanding of yourself as an artist we've made we've sort of explored that but i'm also curious to know uh, what lessons from your previous work you think kind of seeped into the kind of urban sketcher you became did was was there something about uh your fine art skills that equipped you particularly for certain things that you were exploring as an urban sketcher was something about being a commercial artist that was playing in your mind while you were drawing suddenly because you're drawing these pieces in an hour or 2 hours and that's i feel like that process of iteration is a new process for a fine artist because you don't execute pieces as quickly on a canvas hmm well i think maybe that i hadn't thought about that but uh maybe that all those years of doing work for hire you know i if i have to draw fast i could draw fast and so that i did use that and i just it's kind of a different category i mean i i think about the naked bicyclists versus the the restaurant and i probably spent an hour and a half uh doing a pretty detailed drawing of that restaurant and the corner and just all these sort of the interesting angle you know and the the strange colors that they used and that was more like a a painting and i and it was much more detailed but the to to grab a moment of people riding by on a bicycle was the quick sketch artist you know and that's why it, if i could have put those two together great but that was you know that was a separate drawing but it's interesting because i thought i like doing both of those things you know and as an urban sketcher one of the things i did a lot of especially in the beginning was just drawing what i call the landscape of the city and you know i would just sit maybe in my car or uh, just set up you know in my neighborhood in some inconspicuous spot and spend a couple of hours sometimes i'd come to the same place every day uh just to get the light maybe two or three times in the same spot but then i also enjoyed that just going out and grabbing something quickly trying to capture something quickly and so that you know i did a lot of that too and i guess it's it is and i do tend to rely on the drawing and so you know the in recent years i'm trying to push the painting even more and letting uh the, sometimes the painting part take more of a, a an active part but the drawing is for me the gathering information mm-hmm. so i think i have relied on that a lot more especially yeah. in the beginning yeah that that's quite interesting and your example of the bicyclist actually brings to mind something that i recently spoke about with ian fenelly who makes these beautiful paintings like his his art and his idea of watercolors is just again completely stunning and i'm so glad to have discovered his work and to have spoken with him but ian and i have this very big difference in the way that we approach a scene 
and uh, this is that ian does not feature people in his art and i begin with the people and then i think about other things that i want to include in order to frame the human activity so for for him uh, we were we 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 spoke about what inspires this decision because it's just a decision in the end there's no right or wrong in this kind of art it's just about what you want to do and i was curious to to sort of parse the reasons that he has for pursuing it in this manner and his reason and i want to contrast this with what you said about drawing people is that he did not want to draw something that was so temporal so ephemeral it was uh, here for a minute and a person would be there for 5 minutes and then they would be gone he wanted to uh, because he was drawing over a period of 2 3 hours he wanted to draw things that were also there with him for 2 3 hours and they would uh, that would then make the painting a record of that spot so uh i contrasted i offered my idea for why i draw people and i want to bring these bicyclists into this because uh, if i'm drawing people and i often draw crowds they are not standing in the same spot for me they are moving around by the time i draw somebody in the left half of my page and i reach the right half of my page the left half of my scene has changed completely i draw one person by the time i finish drawing him he's gone so the finished drawing is not a record of a singular moment in time uh, so i want to before without going further into why i do it i want to ask you about what you think about the idea of drawing people from observation and what it what it means therefore for the piece that you're producing because these people are walking around shifting positions changing how they are leaving entirely oh what a great question because i'll tell you I mean when I think about my fine art training it was mainly drawing people and it's probably even though lately I've been drawing trees I think I've been drawing trees sort of obsessively the way I used to draw people <laughs> and you know I miss drawing live models which I did for a lot of years but I you know I, my drawings especially in the beginning I, I did a lot of just drawings of the city but what i enjoyed most was going to a place where there are a lot of people where i was drawing people in an environment that was the most interesting thing to me you know there's places in los angeles like the grand central market and uh my favorite has got to be alvera street you know just or chinatown even though that's not as active or busy often as alvera street but there's so many sort of downtown places i went to all the time and i look forward to doing that again um because the people i'm not i often will start with the people because that i will scale the drawing to the people you know and and somebody coined the term franken people which i wish i could say i did but i someone else i'm sure did but where i'll start a drawing and if a person stands in one place long enough i'll get the gist of that person and that gesture and i really do try to catch gesture when i can um but you know it it may be that if that person walks away you know i might have gotten the gesture from that person but the shadow or lighting or color is going to come from somebody else i mean you know so i i do that a lot and i really i haven't done that as much lately because i just haven't been drawing in places where there's a tons of people and i have been a little more focused on nature in the last uh, year or so but uh i i love putting people in a scene. I love that. And I and to me it is part of the not the moment as much as it's what makes the place be alive for me. 
you know, and I, there's a lot of artists like you described that I love that don't do that. But, you know, if there are people, I start with the people, you know, and I scale and I've actually tried it the other way. I took a workshop from uh, an architect at a, one of the urban sketcher symposiums. And it was so interesting that he started with the stage, so to speak, with the and then placed the people in it. I never thought about doing it that way, which was very interesting to try that. But I generally start with the people and scale things from them. What was it like to do it the other way, to do the stage first? Was there a shift in how you saw the scene now? Oh, yes. It really, for one thing, it shifted. It it probably made it easier <laughs> in some ways to scale uh, the people. And I have actually tried that. I tried doing a workshop with... with um, where I incorporated that idea into it, where I started with, you know, drawing people in perspective, which is a certain skill, right, that you just learn what, how to do that. And then, but I tried building a scene and then placing the people in it. And I do think it's a really useful, for me, it's a useful exercise. It's not the way I'm going to normally do it, but it's super useful to, to try that just because it, it, otherwise you can just, unintentionally scale things, you know, not the way you intended. So it's, it's just, it's, for me, it was a great exercise to try it, but not what I'm normally going to do. I'm still, my natural tendency is still going to be to start with the people. Right. Yeah. Um, And so much of my art lesson has come from urban sketching. So I'm not bringing uh, ideas of composition from other media into my urban sketching work, but instead I'm borrowing, I'm taking my urban sketching ideas of composition and framing and the sense of completion and then thinking of that as my art. And so it's it's very it's very much driven by curiosity for me. And the thing I am curious about, and partly that is because of being an immigrant in new parts of the world, is I'm inter- I'm curious about human activity and the things people do in public spaces and how they mm-hmm. interact. So my my scale, I, I like how you mentioned that. I remember in the fifth episode I recorded, or was it the sixth? I spoke with uh, Don Colley, and we were oh, talking about yeah. this about how uh, everything in a city is designed around the human experience. How people are going to open a door defines how far up the knob is. And right. everything is therefore designed to the scale of the human body and the importance of the Vitruvian man in that sense and how it permeates all of our design and art. And uh, so I was thinking about how when I start with people, it makes the subject of my drawing, uh, let, let me try to frame this. What it does is that it makes the subject of my drawing what that person is doing on that location and how he is used uh, the the world around a person and the other way around might be something like the world with various things in it and people occupying an equal position as a tree or a bush or a lamppost that might be a, a kind of difference between these two approaches regardless uh, i want to i want uh, i want to talk to you about something else that you do which i find super fascinating and i think this is also a new habit of yours, just like you mentioned the nature, is your drawing from the passenger seat. I I love the work you've been doing in that format. And I want to read out a little bit from your blog, uh, something that you said about it. You said that about 10 years ago, and I'm quoting, uh, I started sketching on road trips whenever I had the good fortune to be the passenger. 
they started small and simple with pen and ink. And now, depending on the length of the trip, I work in layers, throwing down first impressions and then adding whatever seems to work in the moment. So I want to ask you, how did how did this begin 10 years ago? How, how did the <laughs> wanting to do passenger sketching, how did it begin for you? What were the first things you tried as a passenger sketcher? Wow. Um, and I kind of remember the first one I did. And I just I was carrying around a small little square handbook. I guess they're what, about five by five. And I uh, just always had that with me. And I opened it up and I was using these cheap pens I had found at Staples this is before I started using fountain pens. And they were waterproof. It was just I found a good waterproof pen that I'd buy them by the box. And that's what I used. And it's very quick, fluid. And it was like handwriting, you know, it's like, and I just thought, okay, I'm going to just try this. And my partner is driving. And generally, he'd rather drive than sit and watch me drive. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to be a passenger a lot. So, you know, I'd be, I just thought, well, how much can I record while the car is moving? And of course, on a road trip where things are not changing as quickly, it's easier. But I instantly just got so fascinated by, wow, it's a quick exercise in perspective, you know, find the horizon line, find, you know, how are you showing, you know, where and where are you placing what's in front of you and what's in front of you and what's moving. And there were so many fun challenges and how quickly can I get the idea of a tree down? And, but it was all for maybe the first year I did it, I was all with that same pen on that same sketchbook. And I, every time we went anywhere, no matter where it was, I would do this. And it was mm -hmm. just so interesting. I mean, it was just such a fun exercise. And I learned it. And I always love things that make me have to think quickly as I draw. And, and that's what it does is you have to, what, how much can I record? And the more I did it, I thought, well, how much can I rely on my memory? You know, because I know when we draw from memory, it's not ever the same as direct observation. So I thought, well, what can I record? What can I kind of because I don't want to start to invent things that's not what this little exercise is about right when we make up our own rules but I want to see what can I add that feels like okay it's so again the layers would come um, partly from memory but partly because if you're say in the desert and you know your your landscape isn't changing dramatically you you know you have that opportunity so I had a whole little uh, passenger seat sketch kit of things that could easily be used when you're in the car. And I still do that, not as much, you know, but I still, when I have that opportunity, I still do it. Yeah. And there are so many interesting decisions here. Firstly, some drives are long, some are short. In some cases, you know that the landscape is going to be constant. So you could think of it as a long opportunity with your observation, but sometimes the landscape changes quickly. And on a familiar drive, you might be aware of that. So you know that you have limited time. So there's the influence of limited time. There mm -hmm. is observation, but there is also a sense of composition because, of course, anything you see is whizzing past you. And sometimes you're turning left and the scene is different. The perspective is different. Sometimes you're taking hard rights and the perspective is different. So you are relying on immediate memory very often. And once you've made one decision, that does uh, sort of guide the next steps. You know that your perspective is locked once you have the the direction, the curve of the highway laid out. And the kind of elements you want to put are just are whizzing past you, but you are 
still composing where you want to put them because anything you observe is not there anymore one second later. True. But, you know, I just I'm thinking as you're talking that just like I said, when I'm drawing a scene that has people in it, I generally start with the people. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's a car in front of us, I generally start with the car and then it becomes where are you going to place the car? Don't don't put it dead center. Well, what if I did? Well, you know, so where I place the car, it kind of builds from that, you Mm -hmm. know, and certainly the car will generally change lanes within a few seconds. But, you know, then it becomes the Franken car, you know, where that car (laughs) You know, and I'm not as adept at, you know, maybe paying attention to the details of certain things. So my cars probably don't look like any particular model. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it when I get a truck because I just love the big shape. You know, I love the contrast. You know, so much of our local landscape is palm trees. So I throw in palm trees whenever I see them. You know, so there's I just always in the back of my mind, there's a feeling of I also want to convey where I am. You know, that's part of it. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, the value of putting yourself in situations where you have to draw quickly, where you don't have so much room for hesitations or second thoughts. Um, can, uh, like a lot of artists and even among urban sketchers, but you know, even if we speak within urban sketchers, let alone other media, a lot of artists do like to take that time with their scenes. And there is a lot of art of that nature. Can you tell me what is some what are some benefits of having a time crunch on you? Oh gosh, well, I mean, it it's just it. I don't know. Hmm, is there a benefit? I think it's simply the idea that I'm going to take advantage of this moment. You know, you know, even if I'm standing in line, that what what can I record? And you know, it might even sometimes I draw the damnedest things. You know, it might be the corner of the room because I just want to in a sense, practice, you know, how do those angles work? And when I shift my eye, how can I make that transition believable? You know, and if I can grab a, a little bit of furniture and some of the people. So there's things that I will do like that just because it's an opportunity. You know, I just always am kind of wanting to keep that part of my brain working. And if I happen to capture something that is worth showing to, you know, posting or showing to somebody, great. But oftentimes it's just I, I'm going to take that opportunity to to try to draw something, <laughs> see what I can record. Yeah. Um, now, I'm, let, let me rephrase that question because I want to also see if this elicits a different kind of answer. So okay. it's the same question. <laughs> but what I want to ask you is, is it always better for a painting if you have more time? No. <laughs> so in that sense, great question, because it's, you know, if you have a tendency to overthink, overwork. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've had to learn sometimes walk away, just walk away. You know, I've, I have, you know, you'd think you'd grow out of that, but even after all these years, sometimes if I'm feeling particularly frustrated, I might just overcompensate and want to control or make it work and beat it into the ground, you might say. So it, that does happen. That does happen. And having less time sometimes, you know, is, is not a bad thing at all <laughs> because you are forced to go with your first impression and make it work. So it's not a bad thing. Yeah. And that's, that's a good habit to inculcate, to 
be able to trust your intuition or your first impression yes. in that way without mm-hmm. having a conscious idea of exactly how it will turn out on the page because you don't know how much time you have to finish it a certain way and you know and it is interesting i think also about what i learned as being a designer and it that problem solving mode is slightly different you know i think about you know they say there was this thing going around Mattel for a while of do it right the first time. And that made us the designers nuts because, you know, the process of design is not do it right the first time. It's like, you know, you keep trying it this way because you're trying to solve a problem and it might, you might, who knows how many iterations you might need, but obviously in the design world, you often have a deadline. And so, or you always have a deadline, I should say of some kind. And so, yes, you do have to hit on a solution and stop second guessing, you know, and obviously bring other people into the process. But, you know, when you're doing your own art, it's just, it's not letting, not overthinking it sometimes, not, not uh, questioning Sometimes I'll come back to something and rework it, and it's a good thing. But sometimes it's not. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the these experiments, they, they are so helpful because now I'm thinking about what you said about the op- like drawing when you're in a queue, for example, and you know you're moving about and you have like a couple of minutes. Why is it still useful to draw something? You You mentioned it as an opportunity to keep the brain running. And I'm thinking about your quick passenger sketches where you are flitting between observation and memory and uh, creative skill so quickly, just jumping between these, these uh, drawing from these different sources without, uh, without second, without deliberate thought, just instinct, yes. because you need to exactly. get this done now. Uh, there's, there's this thing that I speak to my guests about very often. I like to bring it up is that as an artist, I feel as a line work artist specifically, I feel like it is my job with every sketch to add to what I call my library of good lines. Uh, I also describe it as a vocabulary of different shapes. Right. I need to know how to draw faces that look like that. I need to know how to draw noses that look like that. So once I have a bank of 50 sets of ears or 50 sets of uh, body shapes, then the next time I draw, I have that bank to uh, to pull the reference out of absolutely and so i think about the value of drawing quickly in aid of that that it's not you don't draw quickly so that you draw quickly every time or so that you can draw quickly every time it's just that even a quick drawing is an opportunity to draw something that would not have occurred to you if you only draw slowly exactly these, that's so true drawing a cue for example is not an option for somebody who thinks that drawing means half an hour and being able to do that to flit between these different sources and these different sources of your knowledge means adding to that knowledge so that the next time you make a three-hour magnum opus at locate at a certain location you simply have a bigger bank to pull out of and it takes less deliberate effort to do that's what's so wonderful about uh, life drawing you know and drawing and gesture drawing and it's exactly that you have two minutes or whatever it is two minutes, five minutes, and whatever it is, you better get it because <laughs> you're going to move on, you know. And I sometimes have, you know, having done it for many years, you know, I'll sometimes keep working. and But I'm trying to stay in a certain moment. 
mm-hmm. you know, and I do the same thing if I'm doing the passenger sketching mm-hmm. is if I find myself shifting out of that moment mentally, you better stop, you know, because there is only so much you can add to it that is going to really add to it. So I kind of have done the both the same way, but it's, it, it's like it, you start with that moment, you know, and I, well, you know, I did that book part of the five minute sketching series and mine mm-hmm. was five minute sketching landscapes and people, the, you know, the first question is how do you do something in five minutes? And what I, my way of explaining that is that the first five minutes are the most important because that's where you make your decisions, right? you know, and you, and, and that's, so if you get a drawing done in five minutes, fantastic. But, you know, you really do make those decisions in the first five minutes. So with a gesture sketch, it's the first minute, you know, you just get. So it's like learning to look for the essentials, you know, mm-hmm. and training your hand and your eye to work together. You know, I teach students the value of thumbnails because they have a tendency to want to labor. And I try to get them to know your mind is working really, really fast. Mm-hmm. So try to get your hand working as quickly as your mind works, you know, and then move on to the next thing. And then you can always come back. And that's, some people have a hard time with that. I guess uh, something that I think about often, and I come to it from being a line work artist who is inspired by a lot of watercolorists and would like to, would like to add color to some of my art. But for various reasons, I find stumbling blocks. I find that maybe there is a difference in the attitude one has as a line work artist and the attitude one needs as a watercolor artist. And as someone who's done both of these things, I kind of want to just ask you how you feel about this difference of using these two tools with respect to how they behave on paper. But then that's that's a more technical side of things, but also with respect to how we observe the world and the way that we strip it down to these elements that are then going to be, that we'll then build upon on our page? Oh, a great question. Um, you know, I've heard it said that some people think more in line and other people think more in shape, and that may be true. Uh, but I think there's no reason why you can't do both. And But you're probably perhaps going to lead with one. And I mentioned earlier that I have a workshop I've called the dance of line and color. And the reason I call it that is because it is a kind of dance where they're not, you know, they're complementary to each other. And when I generally start a drawing with line, I intentionally leave a lot of things open because I want to let the color shape, you know, the color is the shape component. The line is, you know, line does a lot of things really well. You know, line shows direction. It really, it can give a lot of information with line, you know, and it's, it, uh, you can build some texture and pattern, but when you're wanting color to be an important component, you know, you want to leave some areas open because watercolor is just best used, I think, when you let it kind of do its thing. You don't just try to color in. I mean, there are fabulous artists who essentially do that. I mean, they do basically do a very detailed drawing and the color is just sort of added. And that's a way you can work. I mean, you can certainly make the line important and maybe add just enough color. You know, bring the color brings like an emotional component and maybe think of it as not just 
trying to grab local color, in other words, the color that your brain tells you that's a green lawn or a blue sky or whatever, but, you know, looking at a scene and like, what is it, what's the color that impresses me? Maybe a yellow, a bus just went by, you know, so maybe it becomes that yellow bus and maybe there's a little bit of a compliment to that color or just a little bit of an accent to that color where you're telling a story with the color as much as you are with a line, but it's a, a different part of the story, you know, and, and color, again, it's so emotional. And it's so sometimes you can use it really just to bring emotion and not just feel like you're having to record the color that you see. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. And uh, I think Ian also spoke about color in this respect, that it does not have to actually belong to that building in that exact way but it's more of an emotional response from the yes. artist to that mm-hmm. day, that moment, that location at that time. Exactly. And yeah, that's that's such a good point. Uh, I'm also thinking about how so many of your paintings uh, work with a very restricted or minimalist color palette. Uh, w- what are some reasons to do this? Why, why not simply use every color that you can? Well, you could, um, but I think, you mentioned earlier that when you were drawing and you were using so many different brushes in your digital palette, it's kind of the same thing. I think when you use a lot of different colors, I mean, part of it is, you know, are you using them uh, in an expressive, emotional way? Or are you trying to get, oh, that particular green and then that particular green? And and it some it's like you suddenly end up with kind of a disjointed patchwork quilt. And if what you really want is something that has a sense of the unity or atmosphere, you know, that's where you don't need a lot of different colors. You can, I think, learning how to work with just a few colors and mixing those colors, and especially like right on the paper itself, you know, letting, layering your colors, finding out what colors work that way, like very transparent colors, uh, colors that give you texture, you know, granulation. I mean, so just, just you know, you can, in that very experimental way, discover what happens when I put one color on top of another by using fewer. If you use a ton of different colors, you know, it's a little harder to figure out, well, what's doing what? You know, you mentioned Paul Wang. I love Paul's work. And and, and one thing he does is work with a lot of different colors, but he has done a lot of work that's very, very minimal. And I think that's how you teach yourself. For one thing, if you're wanting to focus on value contrast, for example, that's much easier to do in monochrome. As soon as you bring color, a variety of colors, that takes over, you know, because it's so emotional, you know, it's so seductive and it just grabs us away from, oh, you know, seeing the values. Um, But so that's a certain mastery. If you want to master, um, that range of values do be a little bit more restrictive. I like to, even if I'm using a full palette, I'll use just a few colors to do most of the painting because I'm trying to kind of get a sense of the atmosphere. You know, if you really look at a scene and again, working from nature, if you look at a scene, you, if you look at it long enough, you get a feeling of what the color of the light is, you know, the color of the atmosphere, you know, what's pervasive, the pervasive color in the shadow. And so using some unifying tones just brings some harmony to the scene. And then, you know, you can mix it up with some accents. 
Yeah, th- that's such. That's actually a really very good point. It didn't quite strike me in that way about the let uh, maybe I could call it the the usefulness of different values of the same color. Yes. To set mm-hmm. to 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 sort of make up the space that we're operating in. What does the da- dark, dark darkest dark mean? What does the lightest light mean? And then mm-hmm. what are these steps in between them? And then not using the color it's or a different color itself to say to identify a different place but the usefulness right. of a different value to mm-hmm. set the tone for almost i'm using all these words which have several meanings and so what i'm trying <laughs> to say is a little garbled yeah. <laughs> well and there's also the warm and cool you know i mean mm-hmm. there's certain it's like atmosphere is your sense of the place uh and the time of day is it warm or cool and that's going to inform your decisions you know, I mean, most, I think most successful paintings, you have a certain feeling tone in them. They give you a feeling of a mood, you know, it's, and so it, there's something that predominates. And, and just being able to identify that is really important, you know, and then I think that's part of what you're thinking about as you play with the layers of color. Yeah. I, I notice uh, speaking of values that you've done some paintings from, the same location with the same subject and sometimes you've done value paintings and sometimes you've done color work is mm-hmm. is that a process of uh self-education for you like is, of is course there... yeah absolutely it doesn't stop ever <laughs> <laughs> always i mean and sometimes i'll do something in full color and i'm just not happy so it isn't always that i start with the values you know often in a workshop i'll start that way but often i come to that because or i'll come back to thumbnails because i'll do something that you know i just feel like i'm not satisfied with that i'm not well i mean never completely satisfied right but it's like i want to try that as a value painting or what if i just do the little quick thumbnails and i love making little thumbnails because i can keep it simple you know, I can make the shapes really bold. And, you know, do I have the courage to enlarge that and keep that scale? That's that's the next step, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's this other aspect to this that I feel like I need to learn. I'm, I feel like I'm selling my self-education process short because I only rush from exciting thing to exciting thing. So what that means is that I rarely draw the same scene twice. And I notice especially with your paintings at the Japanese garden and with the with that beautiful uh, red bridge that you've made a lot of paintings of the sim- of a similar scene even if maybe maybe your point of view changes a little but can can you tell me as somebody who doesn't do that and perhaps needs to what what is the usefulness of doing that I I don't know if you need to but it's funny I did have someone say to say to me last year well I can tell you're a teacher because you do that really and she said oh i couldn't stand to do the same scene twice and i i mean it may just be in some people's nature not to do that but you know i i found that particular scene i guess it almost is like an obsession maybe where i'm just so i love the feeling of being there at a particular time of day and there's always more there's always more i can take from that and so with each thing it's not systematic but with each 
painting, you know, there is something a little bit different to pull from that. You know, I feel like I've walked into the friggin' Garden of Eden and I just want to spend as much time there as I can. But I want to do it with my sketchbook, of course. So I'm going to keep trying to pull out what's what's a little bit different. You know, how can I see it a little differently? It's just, you know, I I decided I made a conscious decision to give into that obsession. And just if I wanted to paint the same thing over and over again, I would do it, you know. Right. Uh, is is uh, painting the same thing over and over again, is there then a sense of discovery you're looking for? Or are there some deliberate rules that you change in order to see what can I do if I try the same scene with this thing in place or this thing in mind? Oh, I kind of, in a way, in a funny way, it's both. Um, because I don't have a plan. I mean, some people might have a checklist. I don't know. And they're going to, I don't do that. But, you know, because if I do one thing and I feel like, "Mm, I just feel like I have too many different greens or I have not, I don't like that composition. What if I just shifted it? So it's usually the next thing is informed by the previous thing. It's not a master plan. <laughs> right. You know, right. I didn't have a master plan to spend two months, you know, going to the same place over and over again. It just, it felt happy and safe. And like I said, I feel like I'd walked into the friggin' Garden of Eden <laughs> right, <laughs> with my sketchbook. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to stay here till they kick me out, you know, but it's like, what can I learn? I, I, if there's always a component of what can I learn from this? What can I, gain from this that I didn't know before. And I don't always know right away. I mean, it's not that it, it's such an intuitive process, really, that I don't sometimes know until much later. And I look at, oh, okay. Okay. I think I see a pattern here. I see what I want to focus on, or it comes to me. It's like, sometimes it's just like, like problem solving, you know, sometimes the feeling of where you go next doesn't come right away. It comes when you go and you're washing the dishes or walking down the street, you know, it's that kind of thing. So in a way, I'm my, my picture making obsession is with me all the time, because it the idea of what I want to do next doesn't always come directly. It seems like it sometimes has to gestate for a bit. Yeah, the the subconscious just throws it at you at some unplanned moment. Yes, it's just how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, I I feel that so much. It happens very similarly to me. And I wonder if I'm going crazy or if I'm not lost in my own head all the time. But it, it works exactly like that, that sometimes you put something on the back burner and your so actually this is also the way it it's not just art people actually solve very difficult scientific problems in this same way i've heard that, that yes having the knowledge you let your subconscious mind process it rather than yes. the step by step process of and then once you have arrived at something that strikes you in your subconscious mind then with your conscious deliberate mind you reverse engineer how you might have arrived at that instinctive solution Interesting. So yeah. you think about what are the steps that my subconscious took that I don't know about because I wasn't consciously thinking of it to think that this might be the answer. And then that unlocks certain things. Do you uh, like? Do you find value in looking back at your work and then trying to uh, deduce something from it or understand some sense of a trajectory? 
Yes, I don't spend a lot of time doing that, but I, you know, there have been occasions like if I'm working on a project, like a book project or something, where you do go back and start scanning things you haven't even looked at for months, and and I can see, wow, I, I positive and negative, like, oh gosh, I was moving in a direction there. I want to reclaim that, or wow, that was a weird tangent. <laughs> I guess I had to go through that and move on, you know, and you just have to be forgiving of that. And like, well, I guess I got something from that. I needed to try that, you know, but yeah, there is a certain amount of that and thinking, you know, but the other thing is it's that never stepping into a river in the same place twice is that even if I did something that, wow, that was one of the best things I ever did. That does not mean I should go now repeat it. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work that way. You know, I have to keep moving in in what's in happening in the present. Yeah. And part of that attitude is almost uh I, I like to like I like we, we 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 can fall into this habit of becoming enslaved by our own best work and feeling yes. bound that I couldn't do better than this. And therefore, I have to try to copy this every time. This is the best of me. Oh, and I think part that's of over- <laughs> Part of overcoming that is to then have this perhaps false, but a necessary delusion as an artist that I am the master. Like this is how I would tell myself that I am the master of my art. Every time I draw it, I will do it better than the last time. So I should not get attached to a previous piece and let it lord over me in a sense. Does Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Although I have to say, I mean, I do things sometimes where I think I cannot believe I did that. That's just so god awful. I mean, <laughs> why would I do that? But it's okay. It's it is. It's just a process, you know. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> it's not a you know the the trajectory is not a straight one. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> very 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 wobbly. But yeah, and that's part of it too. You know, a lot of self-forgiveness is is important and also a very hard part of this for us. Yeah. Now, with this knowledge, I want to now come to the uh, the, the kind of teaching you do. You do teach workshops, but I'm very curious about uh, your teaching toy design and in that the work in that field. So tell me a little bit about this course, uh, what it does, what space you occupy in it. What do you who are the kinds of people that come to learn and what do you teach them? Okay. Um, I started teaching at Otis College in the toy design department, uh, 2007, I guess. And I did teach design and design and drawing are different disciplines in that way. Although I, I never enjoyed teaching design as much as I enjoyed teaching drawing. I mean, so when I got to where I just was teaching drawing, that made me very happy. Uh, and, and yet the drawing and design are go hand in hand when you're because I'm teaching students who are in a program because I'd like to get a job so I need to give them skills or encourage them to develop skills I prefer to say Uh, and I also because I am an artist and that's the way I've lived my life and I know what makes me happy I like to encourage them to find some happiness and joy in the process and it, for some of them, it is not drawing. I mean, we have an interesting array of students. We have people who draw like angels, and they've done that their whole lives. Then we have people who are could barely draw a stick figure, but they are fabulous with sculpting. 
or they understand, you know, they have an understanding how things work. So there's a lot of different pathways, but I'm teaching drawing. So I always tell them, I'm not here to teach you a style. I'm here to help you express your ideas because that's what drawing is for a designer. It's how you express your ideas. And I also try to teach them to let ideas evolve through the drawing. And in that sense, it's not different. You know, even though I'm teaching people who are going to hopefully go out into a design field, it's very much the same thing. It's, I can't help but notice since I've come back this semester to teach drawing at Otis when I didn't expect to be doing that. And that's just, that's life at the moment. But I find, wow, there's more parallels than I would have thought. And the biggest one, I think, is just to just enjoy the process and forgive yourself what feels like a epic fail and keep moving, you know, be resilient. And I think that's the best thing that students can learn is to be resilient and to keep looking for solutions, you know, and just be patient with the process and also just keep going, you know, don't self-destruct <laughs> if you possibly can. And, but that's really true in workshops and in, in sketching workshops in a different way. It's a different goal, but I always find that I, I work with a lot of adult learners, of course, with workshops and it's just uh, letting go of fear is the biggest hurdle with adult learners. And it's so often the case with a 20-year-old, interestingly enough, you know, in a very, in a different way. So it's, I feel like that's a lot of that, you know, focus on the process and not on the failures or what feels like a failure. See a failure from a different point of view. See it as an experiment. If you see it as an experiment, then the outcome is going to teach you something. You know, you're not going to get stuck in the failure. And, you know, I, if I could just tell myself that, right. But I do know that it's a truth. <laughs> it seems to, it seems to work when we can take that attitude. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Uh, I gave a couple of workshops uh, before the pandemic. So in the USK seminar in Chicago in 2019, I gave a couple of workshops. And in that urban sketching workshop, I told them at the start, because so many urban sketchers are hesitant to draw people. And my workshop was all about drawing people. And I told them at the start for the next three hours, we're going to make bad drawings. Oh, and I want you. you to repeat it to yourself <laughs> that we are going to make bad drawings. Write it on the first page as the I heading. I love it. That's a page great. of bad drawings because you need to release yourself, right? You need to forgive yourself in order to do these things that might be beyond what you would do if you were only fixated on making good drawings, the right. things you would allow and not allow to happen. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about in this light and teaching young people and teaching older people and both of them have different obstacles in trying to do this. Young people who come to an art program, I'm thinking, might be very talented in certain things and might be in the first or second phase of that talent when you haven't when that when that natural talent has not encountered its first big resistance yet you're just you've just been good at certain things always and older people have a different kind of obstacle before them they they know about so many failures and those failures stay in their mind the different ways that they can make a bad piece of art so how does it work to impart skills while keeping this balance between happiness and creativity, navigating somebody through these uh, periods when they will be bad at something in order to get to somewhere good? Hmm. Well, 
I'm not sure if this answers your question, but I guess I come back to that idea of there's a belief that some people are naturally talented and they're just naturally good at it. And it isn't that that's not true, but I always go back to my story about when I took ceramics in college and the teacher would, after we, we were doing wheel throwing and he would line up the projects when we come into class from the week before with the worst one down here all the way up to the very best one right there, you know, and ceramics was not my gift. There was one guy who, oh, bless his heart, he was always at the bottom. So I was not at the bottom, but I was close to it, right? Because the, the pulling up the clay with the wheel was not a gift I had. There was a guy who was always at the top. And I noticed that he fell in love with wheel throwing the way I was in love with drawing. So he was in that studio all the time. I don't know if he ever did it before that class, but it's like the light came on for him. He was in that studio wheel throwing all the time. He didn't, I don't believe he walked into that class, get, you know, being at the head of the class, but he loved, you see, you could say, well, did he work at it or was he naturally talented? And the answer is both because he must have had some sort of gift or inclination that made him want to do that all the time. The way I drew and I draw all the time, I love it so much. It makes me want to do it. I don't know how you make somebody love something if they don't love it, but you have to kind of get to what's most important to that person and how do you approach it? You know, if I have a student who says, I just can't do the assignment this way, then I think, well, what would work? What would make this, what's your way in? You know, let's find a way in for you. You know, there's got to be a way that you can approach this so that it'll work for you, you know. And and sometimes it's like there's, I've had students who've come into a class thinking they're just not that talented, that somehow they ended up there, but maybe they have a member of the family who just drew so well and they didn't really draw. And then if I look at their work, it's like, well, what is it that you really love to do? And wow, look at that. Well, you know, I, if I can tell them examples of things to go look at, there was an artist I remember, I said, well, look at Persian miniatures, because you've got this beautiful color sense, and you have a different way of designing. And, you know, not every art form takes Western perspective to heart. You know, there's different ways to see depth and space. And it's like, she's nobody ever told me that before. And I thought, okay, well, that's my job <laughs> is I like there's a way in you know but of course that's one thing for fine art for uh teaching people in a design program let's face it I mean maybe not everybody's going to work at the same level of competence but you just if if that's a good fit for them then there's a way in there's a, a place for them there's a skill that they can develop because we really are trying to give them a range of skills yeah yeah that's that's actually really profound there's a lot of very good insights in that um thank you virginia this was a super beautiful conversation for me i so enjoyed learning about toys from you and about watercolors from you and about how to how to learn how to teach so many good ideas i'm sure my listeners will also appreciate thank you for having this conversation with me oh it's been a pleasure thank you so much <laughs>